I'll invite you to uh, turn in your Bible, if you brought one, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we've been in a series called, uh, What is the Church? What is the church? The Greek word used for church in the New Testament is ekklesia, which means um, a spiritual assembly or the called out ones. It's this idea of... um, of us being even as uh, Peter's going to say that we are God's people and he has called us out, adopted us into his family for a specific purpose. We've been called out of the humdrum of our normal lives, chasing after what we want. and We've been set apart for something different and this is what Peter is going to talk about. So we ask the question all the time, if you just took the New Testament and you took it to a remote tribe uh, overseas somewhere that had not seen the Western church, what would church look like? Would it look like uh, all that it does today in the West, or would it look far different? And so we've been looking at some identities of what the church is, what Paul calls, Jesus calls, what their definition or comparisons of the church. And the first week we talked about was uh, this idea of family, that we're a spiritual family. The church is not a business And we that are part of the church are not employees trying to earn favor with the boss, God. No, we're a family. We're not employees. We're sons and daughters. Because we're sons and daughters, that we don't serve God out of duty, but out of delight. It's a joy for us to be able to serve our Father. Last week, Jason talked about us being a body. Out of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we're a body made up of many members and given these specific spiritual gifts that God has He literally equipped you to be the part of the body that you need to be. Imagine if your knee just refuses to be a knee because it wants to be something else, right? And that would be be crazy. It wouldn't work. So God has gifted and equipped us to be part of the body. And it says we reach maturity as a church, as the body, the expression of Christ to the world, when every part does its work properly. That means, we, that means there's no one that sits the bench in the family. We're all part of, of, of this family, of this team, of this body working together. And today, as maybe a strange one I'm going to read, the picture is this idea of a sojourner or an exile. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pray with me, God, I pray that these words, these words of life that we just read, your words inspired by the Holy Spirit written through your servant Peter would find fertile soil in our hearts. And that we wouldn't have gathered today just out of uh, tradition or ritual, but we have come seeking an encounter with the God of the Bible. The one who opened his mouth and spoke everything into being. The one in Colossians says at this very moment is holding all things together by the word of his power. Holy Spirit, bring conviction where we have sinned and wronged, bring focus where we're so distracted and encouragement for those that are weary, deliverance for those that are fighting great battles of addiction. Or may we see your son Jesus as supreme. Holy Spirit, do the work that you need to in each every one of us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. 
typically at our church, we walk through books of the Bible at a time, and every once in a while, once or twice a year, we do these little mini-series kind of in between, and we're fixing to start the pastoral epistles here in a couple weeks. We'll do 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus, but before that, we're, we're wrapping up this idea of the church, and I would just give you just a little context that Peter is writing to Gentile exiles. Remember this whole bit of Peter's ministry of, of bringing, uh, you know, the, Paul was certainly the missionary to the Gentiles, but you remember the whole thing with Peter and the whole sheet coming down and he's on top of uh, the, the roof and all these things, and he begins to lead the church, and they see this influx of Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who for so long had been outside the church and now they're included in the church. And because they're coming to faith, they're being excluded from their country of origin. It would be in a sense that, uh, you know, the, the governor of Louisiana would outlaw you being Christian and living here. And so we would all have to get up and move into the middle of Oklahoma somewhere um, because we couldn't be Christian here. And it's the same thing happening. They're, they're being pushed out of their daily lives. They're being persecuted at a level that we could not even comprehend. And they're discouraged and they're confused and they're not sure how this whole church thing is supposed, to, is supposed to work going together. And so this is a letter of clarification from Peter to these Gentile exiles of what our lives is supposed to look like in the face of a culture who is not, uh, that's not Christian. And in, in the face of a culture who is, who, is, who is not accepting of a biblical worldview. And if you, you, you may not have grown up in that, in that country, but we are in that country now as we move further and further away from this idea of a Christian worldview into one of post-modernity, all the other things, secularism seems to be rising to the top. But we see this church not only wrestling uh, with the danger without, but even the sin within. He is reminded them Peter has and told them about their true nature and the place of God's family. This wasn't an accident, but they were chosen by God and adopted, not just by anyone, but by the king of the universe. Ellie, my fourth grader, was telling me just the other day uh, after school that there are several people in her grade who are waiting to be adopted, and they talk about this one one little one is in her class, and he's so excited. The day's about to come where he's going to be adopted into a family. Can you imagine not having a place to belong, being passed around from family to family and foster home to foster home? And God bless those people who are doing that work of fostering. But could you imagine if you were that, you were that uh, orphan that didn't have a place in which to belong, and you got news that there was a family now wanting you. And more than that, that family just happened to be royalty, more than that, just not some small nation that we've never heard of royalty, but this is the family that ruled the entire world. And you move from orphan to, and homelessness to this royal priesthood. And that's what happened to us, right? Isn't it incredible? That's what Peter says, that you're, this, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation in verse 9. A people for God's own possession. Peter has explained all of this to them. The point from a couple of weeks ago was that our identity should shape our ethics, how we live because of who we are, adopted and loved by God, that we should, it should determine and shape how we live. Who we are on a core level would lead to what we do. Now, if we've caught up, let me jump back in in verse 11. You see this intimate language he uses in verse 11, beloved. Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. It's, 
It's the scene of a mom having a coffee with her son when he's about to leave and go to college out of state. It's a father taking, uh, taking his son to report to boot camp or for an overseas assignment. It's, it's this real intimate language of, of someone you're, you know, that you're, you're just trying to speak in the truth. Imagine Peter sitting down at a coffee shop and knowing all that you've been through, and he's there to encourage you. And after a while, you're just talking about how hard things is. And then it gets this, this real quiet, intimate moment, and he sets the, the cup of coffee down. He looks at you in your eyes, beloved. In other words, you know that I love you. My dearly loved son or daughter, I urge you. What's coming out of his mouth next? You're listening to very distinctly. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Some of your translations might say aliens. What he's saying is that we don't belong here. I was reviewing the sermon yesterday with a mentor of mine. And he, uh, he said, bro, I would never ever preach that text. And I think that's part of indicative of, of the Western church, right? That, that, that a lot of times we don't like to handle these hard texts. What does it mean for us to be sojourners and exiles, for us to be aliens? What he's really saying is, hey, hey this world is not your home. You're never going to fit really well. Exiles meant that they were not in home territory. They were aliens. They were strangers. They didn't necessarily, that was not their home. These names were given and used of God's blessed and favored people, but they weren't in a place where God rules yet. They were under subjugation of a foreign enemy power. They were behind enemy lines, so to speak. Peter is saying with this heart of a father, you are God's chosen people, but you're living in a land under the domination of an enemy power. In other words, you don't really belong here. You're citizens of another country. Again, some translations might say aliens. Some say strangers. You're odd. You don't quite fit. That's because we're all tuned in to something different. Imagine showing up to watch a marching band at halftime. And all the individual instrumentalists are watching the drum major on the stage. And, and they're marching to a certain beat. One time I saw uh, A&M play and I saw their halftime show. And it was better than the game. Maybe, maybe you've seen it with such precision. I don't know how those tuba players did it. It was just, I'm watching in awe of the orchestration of what they're doing. And imagine you're watching something like that and you're like, man, that is just incredible creativity and passion and precision. But imagine that scene, but there's one guy in the middle who's paying no attention to the drum major. He's got his headphones on. He's listening to a Justin Timberlake song. And he's just looking a little odd, right? Because... Because he's tuned into something different. And this is in essence the picture that Peter's trying to get us to get as Christians, as this called out group of people. We're never going to fit with culture, never really going to fit with society because we're tuned into something entirely different. When you're tuned into what God is doing, you're supposed to look a little odd. Extremely, in fact, if you're not odd, maybe it's because the rhythm of your life is more in sync with the values of the culture than it is the values of God. There's something that's supposed to be a little odd about Christians. That's why they're called the called out ones. That's why they got the nickname first at Antioch of Christians, little Christs. 
People who are walking to the beat of a different drum, certainly. By the way, when the Bible talks about Christians being a bit odd or aliens or strangers or exiles, this is what it's talking about. Not because Christians have this subculture, this way of dressing and their own kind of music. And some of the churches that maybe you grew up in, we were taught that Christians are different but because of how we dressed and the music. And that could be true on some level. But the, the real difference was what our heart loved. And that determined what we did with our money and what we did with our time and what we did in our relationships. If you were to look at a photograph of a Christian and non-Christian, there might not be any difference. But put that in motion, make that photograph a movie, and it becomes apparent very quickly that these two are very different. How you forgive and what you value as we see here in 1 Peter, how you deal with pain and disappointment will show you a glaring difference between the two lives. The rhythms of the lives of the Christian and non-Christian are increasingly different. And here's why I bring this up and the point that Peter is ultimately making. When the world around you becomes increasingly difficult and even vehement in its opposition to the claims of Jesus as Lord, you need to have some strong roots. When the winds of culture blow, it's deep-rootedness that has the ability to hold fast against the storms of life, the difficulties, the disappointment, certainly the darkness that comes against that prevent our life from blowing over. Again this week, some popular songwriter for Hillsong renounces his faith. This seems to be one in a line of three or four, and in the past decade in my life, maybe a hundred of men and women that I either went to seminary with or grew up with that seemed to be on fire for the Lord at some point in their life and they're slowly walking away from the faith. I don't know theologically exactly what that means. I don't know if they're, if they're gone for good or they were never really apart. That's for, that's for God to decide. But when I see that, my heart grieves. And if I can be honest with you, I, I, I don't want that of my life. I want to be the tree. Jason taught on Psalms 1 a few weeks ago this beautiful picture of this deep-rooted tree it says he is like a tree in Psalms 1, planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Isn't that what we want? We want to be the fruitful tree, leaves not withering, being able to withstand the seasons of desert and difficulty, prospering in all endeavors. Isn't that what we're after, a life that doesn't flip-flop, one that doesn't have to pretend that we're something we aren't, strong, abundant, consistent, consequential life. Peter gives us a clue in this chapter into what makes this kind of life. What are the ingredients that we need in the soil of our lives, the, the thing that we're planted into? What do we need in our lives in order for us to live this kind of life? Strong, abundant, consistent, fruit-bearing. Marching to the beat of a different rhythm without any real concern about what others might think around us. What do we need for that kind of life? And I think it's really three soils Three different maybe ingredients in the soil of our life that we need. We don't have time to get to all of them today, but the soil of delighting in the word of God. The soil of interdependent community with the people of God. And the soil of obedience and service to God. 
All of these, as I say, are in this chapter and many other places we could look into. We might add a few more things to that list, but I think these are the, the main three. Go back to, uh, to verse 2 in, in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Let's talk about that first soil of delighting in the word of God. Again, Jason preached a sermon on this a, uh, a month or so ago, and you can go back and get more on this. But he says in verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The New American Standard, which some of you might be using, says like newborn babies, long for pure spiritual milk of the word. The ESV has taken that of the word out because it's assumed so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, it says. Now if you really study this whole passage, you're going to find that that it really all hinges on this idea of longing for pure spiritual milk of the word. Maybe your translation says craving the pure spiritual milk of the word. The etymology of the word crave as it's used here, it means this relentless desire, this longing for. Paul uses the word seven times in the New Testament. It's a picture of a husband's strong desire to be with his wife. Husbands, you ever been away from your wife on a work trip for a week or two? Or I can't imagine some of our military that have been deployed for six months and they've just got this longing to be back with them. Sure, we've talked on the phone, we've even Skyped and we've sent letters and that was okay, but I just can't wait to be back with her. Or it's a picture of a Christian parent who has a prodigal son or daughter who keeps breaking their heart by the way that they live and they crave for them to walk in truth and they plead. If you've ever seen a parent who's got a kid who has wandered away from the faith and is wasting their life just to talk to them, just the tears come. They're just, their heart is so sensitive and longing for that child to be walking in truth again and Or it's a person who has lost a loved one and they just long to be with them one more time. This, this resonated with me of losing my father a couple years ago. And if you've ever lost someone that you love dearly, you know what this is like. It just kind of hits you out of nowhere. You're just like, man, if I, could just, if I could just have one more conversation with my dad, if I could just hear him bless me again, if I could hear him pray for our church again, if I could just him tell me it's going to be okay again. It's that kind of longing, like, man, I just need this in my life. And this is what Peter is saying, that our lives as Christians, walking to the beat of a different drum, we've got all these oppositions without and even the sin within. He says this is the soil that we've got, to, we've got to dig down deep and develop roots in this kind of soil. It's delighting in the word of God, this idea of longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Peter points to the old way of life, walking in formation to the world. And then this thing happened, the Holy Spirit come in, and now you're craving truth. He says in verse 1, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now why would we crave the word? Because it's how we see what's real. Just turn on the TV. <clears throat> Follow Twitter for just a minute. You see the lies and vitriol and the propaganda and the spin on literally everything who even knows what's true anymore I was at the gym this week four TVs in front of the uh, elliptical machine and one of them is ESPN and ESPN's talking about the 
of the kneeling situation and the race wars and the NFL is now partnering with Jay-Z, this whole big bit, and it's like everybody's against each other and Fox News is talking about the division in politics, the thing with Israel and the congresswomen and all the things. The Weather Channel is talking about uh, global warming and how the world's just going to just, you know, catch on fire here pretty soon and we're all going to be gone. And, and then the local news, well, maybe we've got hope, no, no hope there, just talking about how messed up our cities are and our the streets are trashy and there's no budget. It's just, it's just everywhere, just brokenness. You can just see the brokenness. You just can't even get away from it. It's everywhere. And you're like, what do I believe? And what, what am I supposed to plant my life into? And, 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 and where do I put my passion behind? What is the actual truth? And this is Peter saying, listen, you got to ground your life in the word of God. Have you ever had one of those days where everything goes wrong and your soul feels despondent and hopeless because of the brokenness? And you get out the word of God or you start to recite it and meditate on it or you listen to a song and it's got the truth of the word of God in it. And just your hope quotient just kind of rises just a little bit and your soul is filled once again and you get your eyes, as the psalmist says, up to the hills. Not on the things that are present and the enemy that's around, but focus your eyes on the hills and the one who made the hills. That's where my help comes from can't tell you how good this has been for my heart this week. Just the word of God poured over my soul, talked about with friends. Job says, I've treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah says, your word was sweet and a delight and I ate it. Hebrew says that it's living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. As you read through scripture, you're going to find all these exhortations about the word, to read the word and study the word and preach the word, meditate on the word, search the word, fight with the word, hide the word in your heart. But all of those exhortations that the word gives us of itself to engage with it won't matter unless we crave it and long for it and delight ourselves in it, Psalms 37 says. I read a story about a girl in Brooklyn has this incredible ministry to young moms, teenage moms and neglected kids. And she talks about how they're rescuing these babies and these moms. These moms have no training. They don't know how to raise these kids. They're kids themselves and yet they have these babies and they don't know what to do. And to console the baby as the baby's crying, they put whatever they can in the baby's bottle. They put Coca-Cola in the baby's bottle or, or whatever they have, orange juice, whatever. They just put it in there. And so it pacifies the baby for a minute, but the baby's getting sick because they're not getting the nutrients they need from the pure milk. That's the illustration he's using of a breastfeeding mom and all the nutrients that God designed our bodies to come through the milk. We live in a world with so many resources and podcasts everywhere. and every se Everyone seems to be an expert these days on the Hebrew and the Greek. Man, if I hear one more person say that I, I studied the Greek and the Bible actually doesn't mean what we think it means. Listen, how about we just read the theologians that actually spoke the Greek and follow the orthodox way, right, of the church? Sorry, soapbox. What I'm saying is, listen, you're going to get an anemic faith that's going to lead to an anemic church if, if your sustenance every week is my sermon or Chandler's sermon or your favorite podcast or she reads Truth Devotional or whatever. Like, and all those things are good. But it's the pure, unadulterated, spiritual milk of the word that actually fills our soul, gives us the nutrients we need to continue to march to the beat of a different drummer, God who created us, in the face of a culture who is opposed to the values of Jesus. So read the word. 
Savor the word, meditate on the word, obey the word, share the word, make it a priority as much as eating or breathing that we need the word. And if we don't want the word, along for the word, pray that God would give us different taste buds, that we would wake up and our heart would just long to get with God in his word. But we need more than that. That's not the only soil we need. We do need the word of God, absolutely, and it's such an integral part of this, but we also need the soil of interdependent community. Look back at verse five, verse five with me. Peter says, you like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. The church made up of many members. Think of a giant uh, Jenga game. You pull one of the bricks out and it might still stand, but it's gonna get wobbly. Pull a few more bricks out. That thing has no chance to stand. We're supposed to have the kind of community with each other where we live out the one another's of scripture and we bear one another's burdens and we forgive one another, we love one another. Of course, you can't do that with everyone, but there should be this deep spiritual familial level of community with some. I'm not talking about just hanging out with people at a coffee shop every now and then, but that we would really be in each other's lives. Now, this is a countercultural mindset, especially in the West, that we're individualistic, that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we can do this thing on our own. But that was never the intention of Scripture. That this was the Word of God was supposed to be read, yes, personally, but fleshed out in a community. You ever notice that you got a few blind spots in your life? And the truth is, is you don't get to add a blind spot sensor like the new cars have. Do you know who your blind spot sensors is? They're the other people in this room. They're the ones that get to watch your life and interact with your life. And you go off reading the word of God and you start, you start exiting, you know, some, some weird exit. And they're like, dude, you got to get back over here because that is not the intention. That's not the context of the word. You don't need to, you don't need to do that. You get to read and interpret and apply the word together. Now this is not just, this is not something that just millennials do. This is not a fad. This is something that Jesus was committed to. Jason read it even last week in John 17. His prayer for unity, his prayer for community, that we would be one as the Father and Son are one. Listen, if this wasn't absolutely necessary for your spiritual thriving and maturity, let me promise you I would not even care about it. Because it is so hard. If all we had to do was plan something on a Sunday and visit some hospitals and, you know, do some weddings and funerals, my life as a pastor would really be okay. But dealing with people, right? That's the joke in the pastor world. Man, and my job would be easy if it wasn't for all these people. But then, you know, you wouldn't have a job. You get the joke, right? Man, y'all got to get with me today. Sorry, pastor jokes are really lame, and uh, my kids tell me all the time. This is not an optional add-on for the Christian life. I talked to somebody even this week who told me, man, you know, look, all this is good, but I just don't have time for this. Listen, this is not an optional add-on. This is not one of those things, well, I'll take the word and not community, and I'll take a little service when it's planned by the church. No, 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 that's, that's not how this thing works. To follow Jesus means that we follow Jesus, that that. 
He becomes the one that wills and enables us to do this through the power of the Spirit. He becomes the example of who we follow after. We need these other people in our life, and these other people need you in their life. Jesus did this, not even talked about it, but this is how he did his life. He spent time with hundreds at moments, but at the most of it, he had his 12, and then he went even deeper with three. He really had two groups of three. He had Peter, James, and John that he did ministry with, these disciples that would later lead the church in this incredible way. And then he had some friends. He had Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he would go to their home. And you remember when, when Lazarus died, Jesus overcome and wept. That's the picture of Jesus in tears. He had these groups of people. Now, Jesus didn't need these people. He was the very son of God. He could have come and lived in the desert like John the Baptist did, and, and he, he could have just done his own thing and still died on the cross, but he didn't do that. Why? Because he came to be with us. And so that we would intentionally invest our lives in an interconnected way with other people. When Jesus says in Matthew 6 that you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he wasn't talking to you singular, singularly, that you are the light. Katie and accounting is the light. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking collectively that you're the light. Now, sure, you take that light with you to work, and as you should, but it's your collective life together that really shines so bright in contrast with the independence of the world is the interdependence of the church. That's why unity was such a big deal to Jesus and to Paul. I was with a pastor last week who grew his church from 200 to 20,000. He's not one of these famous preachers. I could tell you his name. You wouldn't know him. As a matter of fact, as he pastored this church for 40 years, he only spoke outside the church twice in 40 years. He wasn't seeking that kind of stage. And yet he grew this really healthy, disciple-making, missionary-sending church that had this huge impact in its society and began to change the culture. And so I asked him, I said, Kenton, how in the world do you walk with God so faithfully for 40 years and not lose your soul? He began to write names of other pastors that you probably do know that have fallen away from the faith in the recent years. Everyone he wrote, I identified with, I knew, I followed their ministry on some level and of course, I could have gone up there and added many more names that I've seen in my own life, people who've walked away. So he stepped away from the lectern, Ken did. He looked at us as a group of pastors. There was probably 20 of us in the room, all church planters. And he said, let me, let me just tell you my secrets. And he listed three things that he had put in his life, rhythms that he had developed in his life so that 40 years later, of ministry, of being beat up, of the attack of the enemy, of all the things that you could imagine, that he still loves the Lord and loves the local church and he's passed his church on to someone else now and it's thriving. He said, the rule number one in my life is there's no secrets. That I've got a group of men that I trust, full of wisdom, that I tell everything to, no secrets. He said, I want you to look for wise people, not smart people. You need people you can trust. Wise people remind you of who you are and what your calling is. Smart people just tell you what to go do. You need wise people in your life. You need a group of three or four or five trusted men or women that there are no secrets. 
Secrets are a ticking time bomb. Even scripture says, hey, listen, your sins will find you out. And you think you might hide it in the closet right now or what you're doing on the screen or relationship inappropriate that you're having at work. You, think, you might think you're hiding it, but it's just ticking, tick, tick. To eventually your life is going to explode. And everyone around you is going to be hurt that's in, that's in with relational distance to you because of, because of something that you allowed to fester. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. One man necessarily can't sharpen himself as well as a one man and another. Is that what it says? Iron sharpens iron, one man sharpening another. You need to have those kind of relationships in your life. Now listen, church, let me hear me. In my heart as a pastor, I know you're busy. We're all busy. I know you might have a position where you think that this is, this is impossible. There's just no such thing. Listen, this we're talking about, we're talking about the, the health of your, of your soul, and we're talking about the effectiveness of your witness. There's no secrets. The second rhythm he said I have in my life and I've had for as many years as I can remember is accountability. There's always been a small group of people, a co-ed group of people that, that we would walk together and we would love each other. And we would live out the one another's scriptures on the grassroots relational level. Hebrews 10 talks about this in verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. How do you live out the 41 one another's of Scripture? Not in rows on Sundays. You can't bear one another's burden on a Sunday. No, that's done life on life. Extending grace and forgiveness, walking with people who are different than you and they parent different than you and they value different than you. And you all bring, you all bring a meal to the group together and they're the ones that bring the vegetarian meal, right? And you're like, ooh, you know. And I, I can tell you so many stories of how this, how this is hard to do. It is really hard to do. And, some, and you get offended. And they offend you and you offend them. And what the enemy wants to do is just divide you. I was talking to my brother David about this this week. That that's the enemy's goal. He wants to get you offended and hurt. So that you're like, man, I can't trust these people. And what do you do when you're offended and hurt? You isolate and you get by yourself and you kind of fester in it. And you just think of all the things that you want to do to hurt that person back. And I'm never going to let them in my life. That's why... Jesus tells his disciples, the world is going to know you're my disciples by your love for each other. Not your respect for each other on a Sunday when you let someone else have the good parking place. That says nothing to the world. <clears throat> but when you've offended each other and you come from different places and different cultures and different values, but your commonality is under the lordship of Christ and you offended, you're offended or you offend them and you, you run to reconciliation. You sa sacrificially love other people. That's what speaks to the watching world. Man, what is that about? This is happening even in our church. I can't tell you how many times that people have given their vacation money for the year. Some of our groups have done this, <clears throat> excuse me, to <clears throat> collect an offering for someone who needed help. Someone who needed to pay some debt off or to move into a, an apartment or to, to get a washer and dryer. This is what it means. This is a call for grace and forgiveness. It's so important to Jesus. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if you're bringing your offering to the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, forget about the offering. What matters more to me is that you go make that relationship right. First go, he says in Matthew 5, and be reconciled and then come with your gift. The third thing that he mentions this pastor that he had in his life, he said, I had, I had some older men in my life. Took a few people, invited them to speak truth into my life who were further along in, my, in, in the journey than me, <clears throat> 10 or 20 years ahead of me. I just listened to them and I wrote down everything they said. And I would ask them questions. What do you see? You see blind spots in my life? What about the way I'm spending my time or raising my family? Or I've got this issue with a teenage daughter and it's, I don't know what to do. You need, some, you need some wisdom in your life. So I would ask them, what, how's the trajectory of my life? Is, is it within bounds to what, what you know of my calling and what God's doing in me? And again, you might say, you know what, Luke, I do not have time for that. You know, it's okay. That really doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation or anything. It just means that you're going to be a spiritual infant the rest of your life. You're just never going to grow up. You're never going to be able to receive and extend grace. You're just, you're just, always, you're just always going to be, you're always going to be a, little, a little spiritual infant. Like planting a pot, a, a tree in a little pot. and The tree's not going to die. It's just not going to grow into maturity. It's just limited by the pot. What scripture says, when we get in community and we get to work these muscles of faith and forgiveness and see what God does and overlook offenses and seek reconciliation and forgive, even when the other person is so wrong, we get to forgive them because of what Christ has done. That is so supernatural that the watching world leans in and says, man, what is going on with those people? Let me be honest, this is hard. We've had hundreds of people leave our church because they don't want to do this. Hundreds. Call me up. If Sometimes they call me up. <laughs> sometimes we look up and like, where'd those people go? I can't tell you, honestly, they would sit with me and they would say, you know, Pastor, we, we, we love you. We just love you. And you're preaching. But you know what? We just want to go to a church where we can just kind of sit and do nothing. All this talk about community and serving and the kingdom of God. You know, we just want to just go and just sit. And listen, I'm not the pastor who thinks you've got to be in the same church the rest of your life. I'm really not that guy. I think you should go where God calls you to go. But I also want to warn you. Can I talk to you as a pastor just for a minute? What, this is the normal trajectory we see. Jason and I, we meet several times a week. Either God will burden our hearts with someone, even wake us up in the middle of the night, be praying for them. And I'll say, hey, man, have you seen, have you seen her or him or that family? Where have they been? I don't know. I, you know, they had this go on, this crisis, and I don't know. We'll reach out, and sometimes we get a call back. And sometimes, oh, man, Pastor, I'm just busy. I'm around. I'm just busy. Slowly see them fade away from any kind of huddle or discipleship relationship, and then out of community, and eventually even out of Sundays. Then I'll run into them at target her and I'll see them before they see me and they're trying to like you know they're trying to I'm, duck or they see me before I see them I'll look at them they're trying to duck and 
They don't want to talk to me. I was talking about this this week. If you do that and Ashley's with me, she's going to come find you. She's just, she just going to make it real awkward for you. So where you been? What's going on? I'm the introvert. Just like, okay, we'll just let them, you know, be clandestine over there. We live in a culture where we're trying to make everything as easy as possible. You remember, I don't know if it was 20 years ago, you got that picture of the Staples Easy Button? You remember this thing? It's brilliant marketing. Like, I know, ordering office supplies is such a hassle, right? This is before Amazon. It's the Easy Button, like, it's Staples. They'll do it for you. Just press this, this Easy Button. And we kind of like that, and that kind of took some, took some roots. And now with Amazon and everything else, is, it's just built around our comfort, is it not? I mean, it's such a bother, right, to go into a coffee shop and order your coffee and wait for your coffee. So they got the drive-thru. The coffee, that's a great drive-thru coffee shop. Well, that's not fast. Now we've got mobile orders, right? You don't even have to wait. You, still, you, know, you just come right in, grab your coffee, and go. I, I like that. That's, you know, that's, if you bring, it, adds, it adds comfort to my life. Food delivery. Man, I just don't want to cook. You know, I don't, really don't want to go out either. I don't even want to go to Chili's to pick up the food. Maybe somebody can bring it to my house. The next step is you give them a code to your door. They're going to come like, bring it to you on the couch. Like you're not, you're literally not going to have to do anything. Groceries. Can you imagine how lazy we look to the rest of the world? Seriously. We don't grow or harvest our own fruit or veggies. We don't slaughter any of our own animals or meats. No, we pay somebody to do all that for us at the grocery store. But you know what? It's such a hassle to go to the grocery store and push a little buggy to find all the different items. You know what? If, if they just had if they just had like a drive-thru at the grocery store where you could just, you know, order it ahead of time. And you walk in and the buggy's right there. You've done all the work. You just push it out to your car. Well, you know what? That's such a hassle too. Could we get this click list? We're literally, we pull up in a special parking lot. Someone hands us a bottle of water and they load the groceries in our car for us. The next step, and it probably is already there, them actually taking it and putting it in your refrigerator. How awesome would that be? I would pay extra money for that, right? This guilt I feel when Ashley pulls up from the Walmart uh, click list thing, and I got to get off the couch and help her unload. I'm like, man, I'm in the middle of mountain men here, you know? Let me be honest with you. That is not how community works. Now, there's a pressure on the pastor for me to make this as easy as possible for you. But when I take away the struggle, when we try to circumvent the struggle of life on life in community, you look at this group of disciples and you got a tax collector and a zealot. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. They hate each other. And Jesus says, you know what, both of you guys, you're going to be on my team. We're just going to love each other. We're going to care for each other and share each other's burdens. And the watching world is going to know that this is not fluff. This is the real deal, and it takes supernatural power to walk in that kind of life. That's when Peter would later say, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, because it is going to be so different than the world. It's not the preaching that's going to just attract the lost. It's not the worship. It's not the architecture of the building. It's going to be people's lives who are radically transformed by the word of God and filled with the spirit of God that they begin to work these spiritual muscles and dance to the beat of a different drum. 
When the world says, hey, let's be uh, selfish, they say, hey, let's be generous. And the, when, the, when the world says, you know, you got to live for yourself, and they say, no, we got to live for everyone else. When the world says we should hate our enemies, and Jesus says, you know what, we should really love our enemies. That's the countercultural nature of the gospel. I'm out of time. We're not going to get to that last one. passage in Hebrews says that we should do this all the more as we see the day approaching. Again, can I talk to you as just your pastor? Church, don't get isolated. Don't let the enemy offend you and separate you from community. What once is a day or a week or what once was a season now becomes your new normal. Slowly fading away, slowly being picked off by the enemy. I'm going to pray for us. And I don't want to end with any kind of manipulation of any sort. I just want you alone with God. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak directly to your heart in this moment? Maybe he would bring conviction of sin. Maybe you're just, you've just had one of those weary seasons and you just need him to remind you that he has not forgotten you. He loves you. As a matter of fact, you are his prized possession. And he has moved heaven and earth to come and grab you and wrap you up with his arms of grace and whisper to you again, you are my son whom I love. You are my daughter who I love. Maybe some of you here, you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You don't know what it is to be part of this community or even to have this kind of faith. I pray you would take a step of salvation today. Salvation is not doing the religious dance, but placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. He shed his blood and was condemned so that you could be forgiven and accepted. Maybe that's the step for you today. I'd love to pray with you a bit about that. I'll be in the back here in just a moment. Others of you, you just got to rearrange some priorities in your life to make some time for the word, time for community. I just pray. Again, feel no condemnation from me as your pastor. This is what I long for you as a friend, that you would be able to thrive and see the fullness of God at work in your life. God, I pray for your people. Lord, we may talk a certain talk, but you know what's in our heart. Would you do something in and through us today? We would see this kind of resurrection life emerging from patterns of sinfulness be pushed away. Like living stones. Covenant Church would be built up as a spiritual house. Not with sleek marketing and social media campaigns, but just going hard after you. Loving each other well. Sacrificing so the kingdom's extended. And the world would notice. Not for our glory, no Lord, not for us. But unto you be all the glory. 
Jesus' name we pray, amen.